service and kids have fun. My name is Pastor Nate. I'm the lead pastor here at Knollwood. If you're visiting, welcome. Just uh, I encourage you to, you can scan one of these things in your chair and let us know that you're here. If you let us know that you're here, we can also remind you about our free newcomers lunch that's coming up. Because who doesn't like free food, right? All right. Let us continue to pray for our children. Uh, parents, if you don't know what's going on, feel free to follow your kids so that you know where they're going. Uh, because you will need to go get your kid after uh, so that we can have uh, coffee and we can allow our uh, teachers to have coffee and tea and cookies as well. Hopefully before all the kids take all the cookies. It's an ongoing competition, let me tell you. As we open up our Bibles, please open them to Acts chapter 23. And um, as you do that, just something that you can be, rem- be praying for as you get ready for this week. Um, Pastor Matt's getting married. So uh, we need to be praying for him in that. Uh, we don't usually do housekeeping things, but I figure it's a pretty big deal. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's a pretty... <laughs> so please be, please be praying for him and his fiance Bex or Rebecca as they get married on Friday, um, that God would be honored and made much of and that their marriage would be Christ-centered. Uh, so, yeah, it's a great time and we get to celebrate that with him. So that's why he's not going to be here for two weeks, something about getting married and, you know, honeymoon and vacation and stuff. All right, so if you have your Bibles, Acts chapter 23, as we finish off that, but as you turn there, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the chair underneath you, it's blue, Um, please take that Bible home if you don't have one, it's our gift to you, as I said last week, I think it was, this is the most precious gift that we can give you, it is the Word of God, and there's nowhere else that you'll learn about who God is and what He has done for you. Um, so that is why we encourage everyone to open their Bibles, to follow along, to make sure it's not my words that are being said, but God's word being preached. And as you turn there, do you have one of those stories where you look back at your life and you're like, how in the world did I even get here? You know, I'm, I was going to say I'm young. I think I'm middle-aged now. Um, so whatever that means in this land of in-between. Um, but I have a few of those stories I'm sure you do, the older you get. How in the world did I even get here? You know, and sometimes we hear this word called destiny or fate when describing this events that get us to where we're at. I had to look up what these actually meant because I don't really know. Um, And it's like saying that, you know, when we use the word destiny, it's like an event that will necessarily happen to a particular person or thing in the future. It's something that's I don't know, preordained, I guess. Or when we use fate, which is very similar to the word destiny, it's about the development of events beyond a person's control regarded as determined by some sort of supernatural power. In fact, the word fate comes from Greek mythology. Okay? It's rooted in how they had these three gods who were spinsters, and they would, they would make cloth, and whatever they do, spin spinning things that's what i remember from the old the old uh the old show of hercules growing up there's some people who got that one but we even have it in our own culture in 1943 this song was performed on the christmas season by judy garland and it goes like this someday soon we will all sorry someday soon we all will be together if the fates allow until then we'll have to muddle through somehow 
So have yourself a merry little Christmas. That is the most depressing Christmas song I've ever heard, by the way. And every time I hear it, I go, this is not a happy song. And I don't think it really was dependent. It was written with the backdrop of World War II. Right? But there's this where there's a great amounts of suffering. But nonetheless, if the deity of fate allows, we'll have a Merry Christmas. So depressing. Now that song's going to be changed for everyone as the Christmas season quickly approaches. My wife's like, I love that song. I was like, well, it sucks. <laughs> you know, as a kid, um, you'd often hear those words, oh, so lucky. Oh, he's so lucky or she's so lucky. That's why, why are they so lucky. And I remember even saying that as a child and my father, who I actually echo these words, which scares me a lot to my own children, say, says to me, there's no such thing as luck. There's not fate, it's not destiny, it's not luck, it's not some sort of like genie in the bottle or, you know, what, whatever it may be. There is not, that's not what we see. And that's not even what we see here in God's word as we open it up to Acts chapter 23. Here we see God doing something very different as the mission of Jesus Christ is being brought, as it brings the message about Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bibles, Acts chapter 23, and we'll be reading from verses 12 all the way to the end, verse 35. The word of the Lord says this. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of the ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. And Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, has, uh, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he, was, uh, sorry, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and, going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Verse 23, then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers and 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him to safety, sorry, safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to the, this effect, Claudius, Lysias, to his excellence of the governor Felix, greetings. This man has was seized by the Jews and was bound to be, about to be killed by them. 
when I came upon them with, a, with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. Uh, to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against this man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him down, brought him by night to Antipartius. And on the next day they returned to the barracks letting the horsemen go on with him when they had come to caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor they presented paul also before him on reading the letter he asked what the province what province he was from and when he had learned that he was from caesarea he said i will hear you when your accusers arrive and he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we just thank you for the chance to worship you. I thank you that we live and praise you that we live in a country where we can worship you freely. Uh, so Lord, as we continue to worship you, as we listen to your word being preached, and as I preach, Lord, may we indeed worship you because you are worthy of it all. And Lord, there is no possible way that I can make this turn out well on my own. So Lord, will you make this by your spirit turn out well? So Lord, by your spirit, help me to preach this sermon with what is needed. God, use this sermon to bring glory to your name and joy to your people and salvation to the lost. And amen. So in verses 12 to 15, we see a planning of a conspiracy. And what does it look like when someone or a group of people have rejected God's providence and his sovereignty? This is it. The people have completely rejected God's sovereignty and have taken things into their own hands. It says in verse 12 to 13, When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. And there's always been a question in my mind about this passage. Are they, did they die? I, I don't know. The text doesn't say. But they did make a promise. And this is the type of oath where you're calling God's judgment upon you if you don't seek to be faithful to it. So this is strong. And I bet there's probably some sort of loophole somewhere. Because as we have seen, even with Ananias, they always seem to find a loophole. But we hear how frustrated they are with justice and how slowly it's going. And that they take matters into their own hands like a vigilante. And, and, jo and Jerusalem has now become a very, very dangerous place for Paul. We've seen that in the last couple of chapters. We can see that just by the number of conspirators and how devoted they are to committing to kill Paul. Remember, they're so devoted that they're willing to kill them, they're willing to die of starvation and thirst so that they can kill Paul. Which is ironic, I think, because what happens when you don't eat and drink? You get really weak really quickly, and they're going to try and kill Paul amongst a bunch of Roman, well-trained soldiers. There's just nothing wise about this at all. But they mean business, and they're going to try and kill him. And they've tried already. And this will either end in Paul's life, 
or the ending of their own. Now, if they would just remember the psalms that they were probably taught as a child. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? As Psalm 2 verse 1 says. And I think it's important, though, to define what a conspiracy is. Because when we think of the word conspiracy, how many times do we think of, like, the Illuminati or the Great Reset or the government or Area 51 or, you know, something like that? I'm not here to make statements on either of that being true or false. But what a conspiracy is, is actually seeking to do harm. I'm planning to do harm against somebody else. That's what the definition of conspiracy actually means. And that is what they're trying to do. They are seeking to do harm upon Paul. They're conspirators. They want to murder Paul. So they go to the council in verses 15 to, uh, sorry, 14 to 15 to let them know about this um, plan that they put together and to request that Paul comes to the council as a guise so that they can kill him. Maybe the plan was to kill Paul once he had entered into the courts of the Gentiles. and We don't know, but they were willing to pay the consequences of killing a Roman citizen and probably the soldiers along with it just so they can snuff out the gospel. Remember, we were just learning about Satan and how Satan is God's greatest enemy. And as, and as Pastor Chris said so well, the thing that he does not want is people to come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, which comes through the preaching of the gospel as the Holy Spirit gives new hearts that enable them to believe. This isn't an act of just men. So their hatred for Paul and the message of hope of the resurrection was so strong that they were willing to give their own lives to take Paul's life. If they would have only remembered that God has said to Isaiah, Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will, make, will not make your voice to be heard on high. Can you imagine the amount of hatred that would be in their hearts, that would enable them to conspire and to break their own law that they're saying that they're trying to keep, because thou shalt not murder. That happens. This is why Jesus takes the Ten Commandments and he applies it as an issue of the heart. Because what are the steps that need to happen in order for someone to go murder someone? To be purposeful to plan, to plot. It starts in the heart. It starts with the rejection of who God is. It starts with that little seed of, of uh, discontent of, that maybe goes into malice or then blooms into hatred, which grows into murder. So they went to the chief priests and the elders meaning that this wasn't an action that was just being done by the outlying radicals. This was something that shows the rottenness of the core, the very core of what is happening in the institutions here. They were truly uh, what Paul called Ananias in the previous passage that we looked at in verse 3, whitewashed walls. There was nothing 
good about this. And more than 40 men who have the support and the blessing of the most highest Jewish authority go and they do this. And Ananias agrees to lie and to violate the law that he's supposed to defend. And, and something to keep in mind here is that in light of what we see before uh, with the divisions of the Sadducees and the Pharisees and what we see here in the text, the, the, the Pharisees were probably not there because the scribes weren't there and scribes were Pharisees. So they've already tried to divide and conquer. Because as we saw last week, the Pharisees were kind of sticking up for Paul. So it's not necessarily the whole group, but it is the leadership of the group. The political power of the group. And this group is okay with violating the Ten Commandments, which says that you shall not murder, which Jesus actually, again, talks about an issue of the heart. And these people are Satan's hateful response to Christ's word, Remember what Jesus says in Matthew 16, verse 18, when he says it to Peter, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, and Satan is trying. He's trying. That puts an end, and this is something that puts an end to Satan's demonic kingdom. Jesus put an end to it when he died on the cross. And let's not forget the Bible describes Satan as an adversary that that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But can these actions, these conspiracies, undermine the purpose of God? See, in the accounts of the planning of this conspiracy, Luke is trying to create a contrast. Here are people who are claiming to be God's people who are acting like nothing like God's people and are willing to break God's law in order to kill the person they are accusing of breaking the law of Moses. But as one commentary put it, despite their numbers and their rage, the mob is powerless because God's plan involves a witness for Paul in Rome. And more fundamentally, because Paul's life belongs to God. No matter how much these people will rage, they are powerless because God's plan is to bring Paul to Rome to testify of the hope of the resurrection. So God will continue to preserve him because God will use even an unnamed family member to expose the conspiracy and fulfill his promise to Paul. So in verses 16 to 22, we see how God begins to expose that conspiracy. In verse 16, we see now the son of Paul's sister. Then this is pretty much the only information we ever hear about Paul's family. So if you're like me, you go on these rabbit trails, right? You're like, whoa, who's this guy? We don't know. And it doesn't matter. Because it takes away from the hero of the story. The nephew's not the hero of the story. Paul's not the hero of the story. God's the hero of the story. And the nephew tells Paul that this tribune has, uh, and then the tribune about this plot and the details from the number of men who have taken this oath and to try and get the counsel and request that Paul, uh, to request that Paul would come so that they can kill him. And so we don't know how the nephew knows about what is happening, but once again we do see this, that God is providentially provides Paul a way out of danger. As we see in verses 7 to 18, so Paul calls over the centurion to bring his nephew to the tribune to relay what he has been told and what an example of the goodness of God. When we see how the centurion not only listens, 
He's not only listening to the prisoner, okay? Think about that for a second. He doesn't just listen to the prisoner, but he also brings that message to the superior. Like, it's amazing how God will use even little things to do his mighty work. And think about how, like this one commentary puts it, God is the orchestrator of circumstances and is able to compose a symphony to his praise from the most distressing conditions. I love that picture. So the tribune takes this seriously, as we see in verse 19. And you can see a lot of how Paul is viewed in eyes of those who are guarding him by, take, by his nephew being able to go all the way to the tribune, by the top of the, of, the, of the pier, of the hierarchy there of the Roman soldiers to have this private conversation. And the nephew recounts all that he has heard, and he pleads with him in verses 20 to 22 with an urgent plea to not help them, to not follow through with this request. So the tribune, being just and considerate of Paul, safety sees that these rumors of the assassination were spreading so he goes and he tells this young man he says go tell no one you have informed me of these things because what happens things start to spread things will get harder there's 40 people 40 men already who are trying to kill paul that's a lot of people it wouldn't take much to make that into a mob there's already been mobs And as I look at this, something that comes to my mind is this. You know, I'm finishing up Genesis in my own Bible reading time. And and I think about how God used the coat of many colors that was given to Joseph by his father Jacob. And I will say this, and Joseph's pride, because there's no way around I can get in that, like, he's a little brat. Sometimes I wonder if I was his brothers, if I would have thrown him into the pit. (laughs) Look at my color of coats. Look at me. You'll bow down to me. But just think about how God uses that coat in many colors, along with Joseph's pride and the brothers' jealousy to sell him into slave slave, slave traders. Like, how could they have possibly known, in the midst of all that was happening, in the entire course of God's saving plan, what was at stake, and that God would use that to save his people? Or how about Potiphar's wife falsely accusing Joseph that God would use that to gain an audience with the Pharaoh that will move Moses, or sorry, Joseph into a, a position of authority that will provide for his family during an area-wide famine. It was all of that that enables Joseph to recount this in Genesis 45 and how God and then how God provides, how God had provided for Joseph and the family, where he eventually, Joseph, with all of that that happened to him, was able to say in Genesis 50, verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So God here with Paul shows his goodness to providentially provide for Paul and get him out of the way of danger. And God uses even the little things to do his mighty work. From a nephew who overhears what is happening, opening hearts of the centurion so that he will hear that and pass that message on, and using the tribune to make sure Paul is safe. Why? So that the gospel will go to Rome. 
so that the gospel will go to Rome. You know, church history talks about how he probably talked to Caesar himself. And I know for a fact from when I see that Paul would have preached the gospel to Caesar and his whole court. See, God is providential. But God, the God's providence doesn't always mean a rescue like we see with Paul. And I think that's important to say. Because Stephen was still stoned for his faith. And that was still God being providential. It's a mystery of God and his providence why things happen as they do. But God is always working in ways we couldn't, we couldn't plan ourselves to accomplish the things that we could never accomplish. And maybe that's the, what the apostle to the Gentiles can testify of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to the epic center of the Gentile world. He's going to get an audience He's going to proclaim Jesus Christ. Where is the gospel going to go from that court, from that emperor's court? Where, where could it possibly trickle to? As everyone hears, the good news of Jesus Christ proclaims. Paul knows this, so he, he rests in this. As God uses this young man to expose a conspiracy in order to bring Paul to Rome. And in verses 23 to 35, we see how God stops a conspiracy. So God stops a conspiracy and using this broken tribune to do just that. And this man is broken. And we'll get into why. If, you, if you're like the detective type, you'll, you will see it. I, I, I was with a bunch of guys yesterday and we were playing this murder mystery thing and they got it wrong every single time. And I'm like, man, you guys cannot see any of the clues. Hopefully we can see it here today. <laughs> You're looking and yeah. <laughs> Some of them might be so bitter about it, so please be careful. So in verses 23 to 24, the tribune gathers about half of the garrison that's in Jerusalem to bring Paul to the judicial center and the seat of the Roman government in Caesarea. The, the, the sheer amounts of men that are being taken to protect Paul shows the importance of who Paul is. Right? You, don't take 275, you don't take 275 men and go, hey, guard this one little peasley little man who just seems to keep getting in trouble. And they leave around 9, 9 p.m. in a march run with Paul mounted on some sort of ride, probably because he had been sore from the beating that he could just get. This would have been a forced march. If you've been in the military, a forced march is something that you, you run forever. And I hate running. So just the concept, the thought about it is intimidating. But they would run. And he's on this ride as well. And this is the last time we see Paul in, in Jerusalem. And this is all really a display of the importance of Paul and why he needs to be protected. And what's amazing to me is how Luke begins to show how Jesus' promise back in verse 11 is being fulfilled by using a bunch of flawed human people like Claudius. As he gets one step closer, as Paul gets one step closer to Rome. So Luke gives an account of what that letter is that Claudius has given to Felix, and he begins to recount why P Paul is in this court of Felix. And we see that in verses 26. And this tribune named Claudius, he, he's actually exaggerating Felix's uh, role, which means he's giving him flattery, 
Remember, flattery is complimenting someone to get something from them. So who is Felix? He was the Roman governor of Judea verse, in 52 to 59 AD, which is amazing to me about Luke's detail. Right? Like, we can read Acts and see, and you can, you can tie it to a history book. And you can read things in the history and see it happening in God's word, which just is another argument for me of why it's God's word and it's trustworthy, by the way. But Felix was born a slave and freed by the Roman emperor Claudius's mother. Felix's brother was also a slave who was an influential friend of the emperor and probably how Felix got into this position, right? Because we all know that you get into powers of influence because of who you know, right? Not because of your qualifications. And what's proven in this is that Felix was an awful man. He was not a good man. And a historian, a Roman historian named Tacticus says this about him. He's a tyrant with the spirit of a slave plunging into all manners of cruelty and lust. Great way to end your life. But God will still use him. Felix's time as a governor was actually seen with an increase of insurgencies and rebellion, and he would ruthlessly put it down, which is why he didn't last as a governor for very long. And once again, God providentially uses flawed humans to fulfill his promise. And and we see in verse 29 that Claudius the Tribune uh, didn't see any reason for Paul to deserve death or even imprisonment and makes that clear in this letter. And you see again how God is using this to protect Paul. But you know what's missing that shows how this tribune named Claudius is just as flawed as everything else? Do you notice the events that happen? When did Claudius find out that Paul was a Roman citizen? It was when he was about to be whipped. You've seen how conveniently he leaves that out of the letter. But once again, we see God using this man to make sure that Paul gets to Rome to declare the good news of Jesus Christ. God will providentially use flawed humans to bring about his will. So at this halfway point, the soldiers return, leaving the mountain soldiers to go away the next day, meaning that, you know, it's, it's easier now. Things can get done now. We're far away enough from the 40 people that want to kill Paul, so the, soldiers, the foot soldiers get back home, and the mounted ones continue on. And you may wonder how you got to where you're at in your life. You may wonder that all day long. Sometimes I reflect on mine and go, what in the world? You know who doesn't ever wonder? God. You are exactly where he wants you to be. You may not be doing what he wants you to do. You may not be obedient, but you are exactly where God wants you to be. So God is working his saving purposes through the good and the bad, as we see here in Acts chapter 23. The Christian doesn't believe in fate or destiny. We do not. We believe in a sovereign, providential God. Paul may be wondering how he got to where he got, but one thing he does know is that God is in control of it all. And he is orchestrating it all to bring about his promise to Paul. 
In God's providence, God orchestrates the plans of man to bring Paul to Rome to accomplish the mission of Jesus, to proclaim the message about Jesus. All of chapter 23 is a reminder for you and for me that God has his sovereign hand in all of our experiences and that we can trust him to work his saving purpose through the hard and the good times. I think I said this a week or two ago. Like, if God is not sovereign, there's no hope, guys. If he's not providential, that means there's no, there's no, there's no purpose in my suffering. If there's no purpose in my suffering, I have no joy. There's no, like, wh- why live? And we see that in our world all the time. I was reading statistics the other day, like 10,000 people have gone through MAID in Canada. 10,000 people who cannot see how God has a purpose in their suffering. And it breaks my heart. You know, the main thing is this about the so what, is that God is working his saving purposes through the good and the bad. Did Jesus not promise Paul all the way in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go for you, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. Even promising that he will suffer for my name. Is there a better place than to accomplish that goal than the capital of the Roman Empire? Christians, we don't believe in fates. If it's just about fate, there's no purpose. We believe in a sovereign God who's providential, who created all things and is working all things out for the good of those who love him. And Paul was resting in that. And yet again, we see God's providence at work as he works all things out from the little things all the way to the big things. You know, Psalm 2 is a great one. As I quoted before, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds against uh, apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in the pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest his anger be, oh, sorry, lest he be angry and he perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And this psalm is talking about Jesus, by the way. If God is not providential, we don't even have a savior. Because God orchestrated it all. It's a psalm that I'm reminded of who our God is. It's a psalm, it's in this psalm like this that I am sure Paul was remembering as he was in custody. So is it a matter of waiting for the fates to allow something? Absolutely not. We have a God who's providential. So what is the difference between fate and providence? 
And John Piper quotes a Spurgeon sermon in his book called Providence, which says this, Fate is this, whatever is, must be. But there is a difference between that and providence. Providence says, whatever God ordains must be. But the wisdom of God never ordains anything without a purpose. Everything in this world is working for some one great end. Fate does not say that. Fate simply says that the thing must be. Providence says God moves the wheel along, and there they are. And that's why God says in Isaiah 46, verse 10, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purposes. So when we say that God is sovereign, we are saying that God has the right and the power to do all he wills, but he is also providential, which means that not only does he have the right and the power to do what he wills, but also that he has a design and a goal. You see how that changes our suffering? It significantly changes how we suffer. It means we can have joy, not happiness. I I get that. It's hard to be happy when you're physically in pain. I'm sure Paul wasn't laughing as he was being beaten. But he did have joy. Because he knew God had a purpose and a plan in that suffering. And for Paul, that purpose and that plan was to go to Rome and declare about the goodness of Jesus Christ. Our God is Lord over all. And that means from the smallest atom to each of those, hey, next time you go to a restaurant and you get a pop, or for my American friends, a soda, if you, get a, if you get a pop, you see all those bubbles going up, right? If God is sovereign over even the smallest of atoms, it means that he's even sovereign over the little bubbles going up. From the smallest thing to the greatest thing, God is sovereign. And he's working out all things. From the biggest of wars to the watery winnings. And I don't know the whys, but I know that there is purpose. So you may be thinking, how did Paul get here? But Paul may be asking that too. But I remember James 1, 2 to 4 says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Therefore, I know this, that God's goal in my life and in your life is that you would grow in Christ's likeness and be presented mature to God. That's the purpose. That's what God is doing. And he will shape and use all circumstances to shape us, to make us more like Christ. So there's purpose in our suffering. There's purpose in what Paul's going through. So what in your life are you with tears crying out to God for the wise? Rest in him. How could that not help you and I in our witness of testifying of who God is? When we are in our sufferings, still give glory to God. What is our response to a conspiracy? To rest in the God who is moving every little detail to fulfill his promise and to accomplish the mission of Jesus Christ to bring the message about Jesus Christ. See, if God's not providential, if he's not providential, that means his promises are up for grabs. They might happen. But this is what I know. And I know many of my brothers and sisters know this. 
God's promises are, promises are sure. They are sure. He is coming back. He is coming back. You know, in our family worship time in our house, in my, with my family, we were just in Ephesians 2, verses 4 to 5, which says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. And one of the questions from that discussion was this, What events or people has God used to give you new life in Christ? Like God orchestrating all those people that preach to you the gospel. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 31 says, For consider your callings, brothers. Not many of you who were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Both, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in this world, even things that are not, to bring nothing, sorry, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him who is, who, who, sorry, because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in Christ. Even your salvation is not of you. Praise be to God that he's sovereign and providential. Like, if you could lose your salvation, as John MacArthur says, you would. I lose stuff all the time. Which means, we also have a God who will, as 1 Corinthians 1 verses 8 to 9 says, will sustain you to the next day, next week, the end. The end when we are face to face with God Almighty. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. How often in the darkest of our circumstances of God's providence do we somehow believe the lie that we're stuck in a maze that God couldn't find us in? meaning we forgot that God put us in that maze, and he knows exactly where we are. God knew where Paul was and where Paul was going, and God's providence means he placed you there in your place. You aren't lost. There's a story um, about John Bunyan, and if you know anything about him, he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He was in prison for preaching the gospel, and there's a story of a Quaker who came to visit John Bunyan in the Bedford jail. And, and the Quaker says to John Bunyan, the Lord has sent me to you, and, I ha- and I've been searching half the prisons of Europe to find you. You know what John Bunyan's response was? It was gold. He says this, if the Lord has sent you, he'd have told you where I was because he knew all along. I wish I had words like that. (laughs) See, if God is not providential, we have no hope of the resurrection. We have no hope of eternity with Christ. We have no point in our suffering. And I'll say this, we have no God. But God is providential. But that's not the case 
Because as Galatians 1 verse 4 says, we have a God who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Sit on that for a bit. Read that again. Galatians 1 verse 4. Who gave himself for our sins, my sins, your sins, to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. See, God had a plan, a plan of salvation that reached from Genesis when Adam sinned against a holy God. And because of that sin, it spread like a poison to all of humanity because by nature we are sinners because of that. And because we act according to our nature, we sin. And because we sin, we deserve the very real and deserved punishment of hell. God's wrath being poured out on all those who sin. But Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of God the Father so that anyone who repents and believes will have life. Without the God being providence, we don't even have the gospel. Is it not the biggest example of God's providential work? How he orchestrates through history and saving, uh, in a saving plan for all people? Again, that quote says, God is the orchestrator of circumstances and able to compose a symphony, and, uh, to, uh, symphony to his praise from the most distressing conditions. See, what in your life have you been questioning the wise but missing the one who is? God is sovereign. He is providential. There is a purpose. There is a plan. I'm not saying it's always going to be fun. It's not always rosy. I'm not saying it's always going to be even hard. Right? There's going to be great amounts of joy and laughing and, and happiness. I've had three interactions with brothers and sisters in this church this week where it's full of laughter and joy and happiness. But we are called to trust him. You know, I was thinking about this with God's providence, even in terms of salvation. You know, as a parent, I'm a parent, I have three children, for those who don't know. You know what one of my greatest prayers is? My only prayer, really, is that God would save my kids at whatever the cost. Whatever the cost. God save my children at whatever the cost. Because the cost of hell is greater than whatever they will face in this temporal world. Whatever. But in order for that to happen, God has to be providential. Does he not? Whatever the cost, God, save my kids. Whatever you got to do in whatever circumstances, Lord, save my kids. Do you pray like that for your loved ones? Because if God is providential, it changes even how I pray. God, save my neighbor, save my, my, my spouse, save my, my parents, save them at whatever the costs. Do whatever you got to do, God, in order to make sure that they know you as Lord and Savior, to know the hope that I have in you, whatever the cost. May we rest in the one who sits in the heaven and laughs, or as one translation says, laughs in disgust. The Lord holds him in derision. He scoffs at them. Who gave himself for our sins. To, be deliver, to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of God, our God and Father. If you are in Christ, you brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, 
You have the confidence that in all the circumstances that you may face, whether it be the good ones or the bad ones, God is watching over us, making sure that we are under his protection and care and that his purposes and plans will happen. Whatever they are, God is working his saving purposes through the good and the bad. That's what we see in Acts chapter 23. Let us worship our God together.